Hey there, and welcome to the Pseudo Show, brought to you by the Destination Linux Network. Today, we have an exciting interview with Peter Zaitsev, founder and CEO of Percona. We discuss open source, software licensing, and all things databases. All that and more on this episode of the Pseudo Show. Welcome to the Pseudo Show, your home for all things enterprise open source. I'm Eric, the IT guy, and today we're going to share an interview with a true open source advocate, Peter Zaitsev. He's the founder of Bracona and has a real passion for helping his customers lower cost, maximize uptime, and avoid vendor lock-in. And of course, I'll be joined by my favorite co-host, Brandon Johnson. But before we jump into our interview, I've got to tell you about our sponsors over at Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and business organizations to store, share, and sync sensitive data. Bitwarden works across all your devices, from mobile, desktop, and even browser plugins. It's 100% open source, so you know their code can be trusted. Bitwarden is free to get started, but you can get upgraded features for just $10 a year. That's right, $10 a year. This gives you features like one gig of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, Vault Health Reports, and Bitwarden's new Emergency Access. It couldn't be any easier to get started with Bitwarden. Just head on to, over to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started today. And a sincere thank you to Bitwarden for sponsoring the Pseudo Show. As I mentioned in the intro today, we are excited to bring on Peter Zaitsev. Peter is the founder and CEO of Percona. He is an accomplished public speaker, mentor, author, and member of a number of boards from various database and open source organizations. Peter, welcome to the show. Thank you. So, Peter, just... Uh... Tell us a little about yourself. How did you get started in technology? Is this pl was it planned or just something you fell into? Oh, well, uh, that's an interesting question. I was uh, thinking about uh, that because this particular thing is not asked that uh, often. Uh, I think when I was like a very uh, small kid, I wanted to be something like, you know, bus driver when I was five because that sounded, you know, like a cool thing to do. But then... Uh, I think after, you know, 12 years or later when I uh, discovered uh, computers, right, I knew what uh, there's some, I will do something with uh, them, right? I didn't know what I will go into databases, uh, open source, right, or even more uh, run the company uh, in this space. But I think I, uh, that was a love at the first sight, if you, uh, if you will, for me. And if uh, it kind of sounds strange why it's kind of so late, 12 years uh, old, I was... Uh, growing up in their uh, Soviet Union, uh, right, and uh, in our world where computers have not been as ubiquitous uh, as in the United States at the same time and age. Technology was actually my second career path. It was actually my second uh, choice in career paths. The first was going to be a, a fighter pilot in the U.S. Air Force, and then I shattered in my knee. So, you know, here, here I am. <laughs> oh. Wow, I mean, what pilots need for, right? I mean, I understand <laughs> your sharp eyes, right? And, uh, you know, quick reaction to click a missile launch button, but knees. Apparently, the rudder is pretty important in a jet. And, uh, you know, there's there's some concerns as to the integrity of my kneecap after after my accident. But, uh, you know, hey, I can't I can't complain about the, uh, the, uh -huh. the the life that I've lived since then. In fact, you, you mentioned going in. You didn't plan on going into databases. So how did uh, how did that come about? I think I get uh, interested in the, in the database uh, as gradually uh, ranging from a college experience. And then my first startup I was uh, involved in was a company called uh, uh, Spylog. We were something like a Google Analytics of 
you know, Russia uh, late uh, 90s. And this was an extremely data-driven application, right? You need to really get uh, process a lot of stuff. And uh, uh, really, while I was CTO on that project, I really spent a lot of my time messing with databases, solving database problem. And that's how I kind of get into that uh, uh, that field, if you like, right? So we were very early MySQL user at that time, right? And that's how I get uh, connected to you know, folks at uh, MySQL team, right? There was kind of that uh, crazy Russian guy who would write another, say, hey, here's a bug, you know, fix it. Well, I would continue saying things, but you say you're a family-friendly show, so <laughs> let me end the sentence there. I think we can infer from context. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, you know, you're a published author. I mean, people won't be able to see this, but this book, I happen to notice this in your background, yeah, uh, that high performance MySQL. I, this is the second edition. I had the latest one, but mm-hmm. this book saved my career. So first, thank you. <laughs> I did a, a lot of MySQL work at the beginning of my career. It's probably still my favorite book around MySQL. So, so first, thank you on that. I really do. Like this was uh, was a fantastic uh, book. Do you have anything new in the works? around uh, whether that's MySQL or Postgres? Uh, yeah, well, uh, not a book-wise, yeah. right? Like, uh, unfortunately, when you are CEO, right, and you have this task of running the company, there the time to kind of take a geek out and uh, uh, spend time on technical things typically doesn't come in the large enough quantities so you can focus and, uh, and write the book. Right, so I have uh, transitioned to kind of like a smaller, uh, smaller medium. You can find me still blogging, uh, doing the presentation, right, and webinars. But I haven't had the time to write a book in the recent years. So you're you're busy as CEO of, of Percona, and we'll dive into that here in just a minute. But uh, but you also serve on a number of different boards and in different organizations. Why don't you talk about uh, some of the, some of the different uh, groups you work with? Well, let me start probably with. Uh, why, right? So from my standpoint, yes, I happen to run your corner, but I am uh, very passionate about uh, pu- uh, about pushing the boundaries of open source and especially in the uh, open source uh, database space. So then uh, I am uh, finding some uh, entrepreneurs, right? Or just, you know, developers having the open source project. I am uh, always happy to help. Right. In certain cases, just, hey, you know what, can you folks maybe help promote it through social media, right? Or maybe have them uh, come and speak at our conference, uh, Percona Live, right? Or maybe offer some advice here and there. Then there are also some uh, organizations where I uh, am in uh, advisory position. And also be, uh, besides Percona, I have to had to help with co-founding some other uh, organizations out there as well. Uh, I think uh, the most interesting company besides Percona would be a company called uh, Altinity, which is a company around the ClickHouse technology. Right? And the ClickHouse is this really kind of super fast open source uh, column store, right? which is really kind of a very different market right? compared to MySQL and uh, Postgres, but that's also something I was able to contribute to. Peter, we've had a number of founders as guests on the show. 
how would one of our listeners know if they'd be successful as an entrepreneur? That's a loaded question, but we've asked this of uh, one of our other uh, guests. Uh, I'd like to hear your answer on this as well. Of course. The first, I would say, well, I believe that there are very many paths to be a successful entrepreneur, right? There is not one path. And probably one uh, kind of bad thing you could do, uh, right, is to compare yourself with maybe some other stars you have, right? And say, well, you know what? I am not like a, as creative as Steve Jobs, right? Or maybe not have such a great public speaking skills, right? Or for somebody else, right? If you really look at the uh, company successes, you would know what there are company uh, founders uh, success which come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, I think the two things which are important uh, from my point one is uh, uh, passion about whatever you are trying to be uh, successful with, right? Because if you just, you know, don't care if you say, well, I mean, I have no passion, but I think maybe that's a good way to make money, it's very unlikely to be uh, successful. Their other thing is what uh, they're uh, running a business is in the end uh, a team sport, right? And you would find some entrepreneurs, they are successful as a solo entrepreneurs, right? The others would be like, a, you know, founding team of two or, uh, or more people. But then as you look at the company a couple of years in, right, you would, all a successful company that is, right? You would always see entrepreneur with a team because nobody is good with everything. Right? And nobody, even if you can be good at everything, you don't have time to do everything, right? So really having, uh, finding those people to supplement your weaknesses, if you like, and delegating and trusting them to do their job in that uh, area of responsibility you assign them, I think is very important. And this, the startup culture is something I've really found interesting. And if I were, uh, if I were maybe a little bit crazier, maybe I'd, I'd try myself someday. But uh, like you were talking about, I haven't found that that need, that gap in our in our industry that really, that I'm really passionate about. I, I found that working with folks like Red Hat or the open source community has really been where I like to find myself just because I can, I can draw on the energy of others. And just like the show is an extension of that, being able to come on here, meet, meet folks like yourself and, and share your story. That's something I'm very passionate about. So while I may not ever start my own company, I I love the idea of working with others with theirs, with their own company. Yeah. Well, let me also say this, right? I think one of these interesting challenges, right? And I think especially how it applies to their open source community is this kind of a growing cult of a Silicon Valley mold entrepreneur, right? And what that means is, you, hey, you have this kind of a great... $10 billion idea, you go ahead, you raise, uh, you know, gazillion dollars of venture capital, then you work 200 uh, hour weeks, right, for, uh, you know, whatever uh, years, and, and then boom, right, uh, you are rich and you can retire on your private uh, island, right? And, uh, right, I think that is, you know, maybe we have some of those uh, examples right and they get a lot of press but it doesn't have to be what entrepreneurship is about and what you don't have to strive for right like for example very often you would hear about almost like kind of derogatory reference about like a lifestyle company 
there is nothing wrong with that, right? I, I don't think there is wrong with uh, entrepreneurs, especially in the open source space, who say, hey, you know what? I want to make a difference. And that is my main point. Maybe it's not going to be a billion dollar company, but I'm going to be making a difference, right? And one of the people I respect very much is uh, a guy named Dr. Richard Heap, right? You haven't heard about him. Well, maybe you haven't. He is uh, the founder of uh, SQLite. Right? Oh, yeah. And what is interesting about the SQLite is while it's not super known product uh, or in this case, it is everywhere, right? Your browser, your phone, right? The majority of the Internet of Things devices out there have maybe multiple copies of SQLite embedded, right, in this case. But he is not uh, kind of as famous or as rich, right, as many other companies. But if you think about the value that SQLite uh, provided, I think that's not less, maybe even, even more than a billion dollar plus variations companies out there like Mongo, uh, Elastic, right, and uh, some others. So, uh, you know, kind of dovetailing off of entrepreneurship, your company, what was the need that you saw in, this, in, the, in the space that brought you to found your your organization. Like there's um, several open source companies out there supporting databases, um, whether that's like uh, Enterprise DB, Mongo, et cetera. What was it that you saw at, at, in the market and that what are you trying to fill? Yes. So I would say what Percona was more of a journey than this kind of like a grand vision which came to me during the sleep, right, or uh, something like that. Before Percona, I was uh, working on, uh, uh, in MySQL AB, right? That's kind of original team beside, behind MySQL. And uh, then I started uh, out there, the team was less than 50 people in size, and this was what I would call like a romantic open source company, right? In a sense, what we were really out there to make a difference, right, to really unseat Oracle, uh, really to be very helpful to uh, our customers and so on and so forth, right? Gradually, though, their MySQL ended up going kind of traditional road. Uh, it's, uh, you know, raised their venture capital. And a lot of that gradually become, okay, how do we really maintain that growth curve what uh, our VCs uh, expect from that. And there have been a number of uh, uh, compromises to that in terms of putting their this kind of monetization interest in, uh, in front of the customer goals, right? And I found myself gradually, you know, like distancing myself from a I remember in the first years of MySQL, I would be telling V, we took this decision, we do that, uh, you know, we do them. And then I noticed I'm saying them, oh, MySQL, we did this, we did that, right? For me, that was kind of interesting realization what I don't associate myself at company anymore, right? Because I cannot support their decision. And that obviously was uh, the time for me uh, for me to leave. So I decided to do uh, what I knew how to do uh, and uh, start the service company around MySQL ecosystem. Uh, with our main promise at that was really what we will be very much customer focused. You know, we are 
putting our customers and we are go uh, we are doing what's uh, right for a customer right and this is something which uh, remains our key value uh, at that time uh, uh, even at the, at this point like one example i will when people ask me like what is one of your proud point of your corner i give an example when you know some customers come to us and say hey we wanted to migrate the database from oracle to mysql and they look at that say hey you know what that is going to be super hairy super uh, super expensive and you know what and unlikely successful right as a consultant we actually could have sell them that project milk them uh, like probably for a couple of uh, couple of years and they say well it didn't work out right instead we say hey you know what you probably shouldn't be doing that right it, you it will make uh, would make us a lot of money if we sign you up but you are better off not doing uh, doing that project right and this deal in a separate deals right then uh, i have a quantifiable ways when we are uh, putting the customer first right even if it's uh, not into our financial advantages is a moment they're most proud of or proud of their corner so we started with professional services with Percona and gradually we transitioned to cover multiple databases and offer a full full portfolio, right? We have uh, software right now, we have uh, support, managed services, you name it. Now, you also said, well, there are other open source database companies, right? Here is an uh, uh, interesting thing is what majority of or other open source companies are not really open source companies. They're typically open core companies, or it is right. kind of source available or something like that. Like you mentioned MongoDB, for example. Well, MongoDB a few years back ditched their uh, open source license, right? And went to source available license called SSPL, right? If you look at the uh, enterprise DB, while EnterpriseDB is a great contributor to PostgreSQL ecosystem, right, and to contribute to PostgreSQL core a lot, the real product they sell is not 100% open source, right? It includes a lot of uh, proprietary pieces, so it's PostgreSQL based, right? Or, or it's kind of open source based rather than completely open source. What makes Vircona different is what our software is open source. Everything what we write, we uh, distribute uh, and distribute to the customers is distributed under open source license. We don't do open core. We don't do like, you know, eventual open source or other stuff, right? Well, to be fair, when we have a, a Perconus version of MongoDB, we distribute that uh, at under SSPL, which is source available, not open source license, but this is not because of our choice, right? That is just because, well, when upstream changes the license, you even have to follow or you have to fork right and uh, you know trying to fork when you are having on the other side you know many hundreds of people worth of engineering team that is not very practical approach right now uh percona at least on, on your website you know and correct me if i'm wrong you know it's, are supporting at least three open source databases you know that, that's got to be a, a difficult task i mean supporting three massive projects like mysql postgres and and Mongo, how do you decide how you're going to focus your development resources? Like, sounds like you are contributing upstream. So how do you decide where to focus uh, development resources when you need to? Yes. Well, uh, indeed, uh, we support MySQL, MongoDB, and uh, Postgres, right? And also you can 
count. So sometimes MariaDB, right, wherever you want that to count as a part of MySQL ecosystem or as a as a separate uh, uh, separate database. And I would say our contribution is different among uh, the different ecosystem, right? Bby by far contributed the most to the MySQL, right? That was the first technology added, and then kind of MongoDB, which we've been doing now for probably like about five years, uh, and then. PostgreSQL is much more recent uh, for us, right? We also look at uh, the needs of a community, which are not same everywhere. Like, uh, for example, if you look uh, at uh, backup solution, we have created backup solution kind of uh, years ago, Percona Extra Backup for MySQL. More recently, we created uh, Percona Backup for MongoDB because MongoDB does not have a good uh, open source backup. Uh, solution, right? Only proprietary. At the same time, in the PostgreSQL space, which is you know PG backrest, and there is actually whole other set of uh, open source backups which we simply use as a part of solution for our customers. And we apply this idea to you know, all our products. We want to. Uh, we understand we are a small company compared to ecosystem uh, at large, and we want to be very focused to understand where the gaps are and where we can provide the maximum maximum value, right? And that is where we focus our resources and also, of course, what our customers are telling us. So I think we'd all agree that we live in a cloud-native era. Kubernetes is, is kind of king of, of this particular castle. So how do, how do you feel the databases fit into this new paradigm? Yeah, well, uh, I think this is very, uh, very interesting. If you look at the databases, Database is some of the more sensitive part of your uh, of your infrastructure, right? And for a good reason, right? Because this kind of um, a state needs extreme care how you work uh, with it, right? Because if you think about your web application, for example, if it kind of crashes, well, you can always just kind of spin it up, right? If your database crashes and some of your updates lost, uh, right, or data gets corrupted, well that is a much, much bigger problem, right? And with that, database uh, and DBA is always kind of very conservative, right? Like I remember, you know, more than a decade ago uh, now when virtualization was coming along, you know, people also would, the database folks would be also the last to say, to want to run database in virtualized environment, right? Especially mission critical ones, right? The same happens in, the, in Kubernetes, right? And I think at uh, right now we are at the stage there are fears of uh, old Kubernetes, of a state of a Kubernetes, you know, three years ago or something, is a more important kind of driver than, than reality, right? We are working with some customers which are uh, running mission-critical database on Kubernetes and are quite successful with those, while... At the same time, you, you see the same kind of customers telling us, oh my gosh, well, that is absolutely impossible. Nobody in their right mind would uh, run those workloads uh, in a Kubernetes, right? So if you look at from my standpoint, right, and this is, a, I think, is an interesting for many di uh, dimensions of database adoption is we geeks often tend to think about the technical aspects of a product, right? But this is not uh, all of it. Right, the human aspect is often much more important, right? And we need to look at okay, what is the team thinking, right? Is team comfortable with Kubernetes? Do they want to make it work, 
or do I want to prove what it cannot be done so they are left alone not using Kubernetes? Because if that is uh, uh, what you want to do, they will find a way to, uh, to make it so it doesn't work. If uh, that is a team situation, well, then maybe we need to have other teams adopting that, right? To have some, you know, software approach to say, hey, guys, maybe you want to write it to, to try to CI CD instead of your kind of mission critical production first. And then as you get confidence with that, you can graduate to, uh, to a kind of mission critical production. Yeah, so that's uh, how we would uh, approach it. You know, I I lived that as as a, as a as as a recovering systems administrator. I lived exactly what you were talking about when when virtualization started to make its way out into into the world, and when uh, when everything was starting to get virtualized. I have never had to fight and beg so hard than to get database administrators to give up their their physical hardware. The company that I spent the most time on this on this virtual virtualization project with ended up we virtualized literally everything else in the data center. Applications, backup servers, utility boxes, load balancers, everything else got got virtualized. And then we went back to the DBAs and the most we could get them to budge in, in that calendar year was to virtualize non-production. And then after a few months, when hardware was starting to come off lease <laughs> or as older hardware was starting to go out of warranty, finally, it took managerial pressure to, to convince them that, look, nothing bad has happened in our virtual environments. In fact, our, our reliability is up. Everything's working fine. The world will not end. We're not crossing any streams here. So we have to virtualize the database. It was really funny to then watch as this cloud native transition has started happening. And seeing those same people swear up and down, databases will never, ever run in Kubernetes. It's just absolutely not possible. And now here we are. Well, uh, let's mention, I think, uh, some other interesting aspect in this case, right? And this goes in the databases, you know, Kubernetes and the, and the cloud providers. Right? Because if you look at uh, your custom applications, cloud vendors now understand that Kubernetes are... Kubernetes want, and that is what people would use to to deploy it. But Kubernetes is pretty much kind of, uh, pretty much commodity, right? To getting close to that in terms of what Kubernetes is between different cloud providers. But where cloud providers try to innovate and push you is using their proprietary database technologies. Like many of you can say, well, you know what, you use run your application in a Kubernetes, but instead of Storing data in Kubernetes, which is not a good idea, maybe you use Redshift or DynamoDB or Amazon Aurora, right? Or Google Spanner or BigQuery, right? Uh, and guess what? It's common among all those services, right? These are things which are not open source, right? And which are intended to lock you into a particular, particular cloud vendor, right? So I think that is uh, another reason why there is maybe more FUD in terms of Cariness of uh, running database and Kubernetes where it should be. The whole uh, premise of getting your data into the public cloud and then it stays forever, essentially. Like you, you adopt an Amazon da uh, database as a service solution and, and uh, you're not leaving, <laughs> at least not anytime soon. What's your thoughts around that? Like we, our day job, we're talking about hybrid cloud. You know, we've talked about that in other episodes, but... When I, when I say that, I mostly mean like least resistant way of doing, of data portability. You know, what, well, what's your yes. thoughts on, on I stuff mean, like uh, that? Uh, you are, uh, you are totally right. 
uh, right uh, in this case i mean getting data to a single uh, cloud can be extremely risky right both from kind of giving the pricing power you get to a uh, vendor or let's say some other concerns right being that the decisions of a, of a cloud vendors or even maybe things like a government sanctions like for example recently you may have heard about the case of uh, amazon decided to cancel account on, on a parlor application right and again i'm not going to judge where what father was doing kind of good or bad right uh, but the point is they have a service stops uh, on them with a very short notice right uh, without them even kind of being able to get the data from amazon quickly enough right and the same may happen is uh, for, for example because of some government sanctions right or or whatever or other uh, stuff right so from my standpoint i think it's a very good idea to go hybrid cloud or multi-cloud even if uh, you say hey amazon works kind of wonderful for my production maybe you can uh, make sure you have uh, kind of streaming backup going on to some other cloud or or maybe uh, your data center you control so in a, in a worst case scenario you can uh, recover what is i think even kind of more uh, advantages right is this kind of a multi-cloud deployment which some technologies like a planet scale support when you can say well instead of just having my data in one kubernetes cluster i can deploy that both in google and amazon and uh, azure at the same time right so if one of the clouds goes down completely right for whatever reason i still can continue or continue operate one of the examples i i give is probably one of the best known in open source was uh, shortly after microsoft acquired github GitLab, actually, a lot of their stuff was hosted on, on a Microsoft Azure. And so they decided to hit the escape hatch and uh, go to GCP. I believe that was right. Eric, you worked at GitLab, I think, actually during this transition. Yep. And uh, they just completed the transition uh, when I started working there. In fact, the whole hashtag move to GitLab movement was why I ended up getting getting hired on there. <laughs> <laughs> Today's interview is brought to you by none other than DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer-friendly cloud platform. You can get started on DigitalOcean for free with a $100 credit by going to do.co slash DLN. They provide a competitive edge for your business while having an easy-to-use interface. DigitalOcean provides one of the most reliable platforms with over 100,000 developer teams worldwide and offer four nines of uptime. Think a service like this would come with a complex pricing scale? Not at all. Enjoy DigitalOcean's flat monthly fees so you'll always know what you're spending. DigitalOcean offers world-class customer support with tech-savvy technicians and even around-the-clock support for premium subscribers. Couple that with Duo's security-compliant infrastructure and you have the perfect formula for hosting your blog, hobbyist site, or the enterprise-scale application. DigitalOcean keeps getting better and better while still keeping the same easy-to-use UI, and who can beat their amazing library of APIs? That is why we are so excited to share their service with you. Just head on over to do.co slash DLN to get your own $100 credit to try out all their awesome features, and thank you, DigitalOcean, for sponsoring the Pseudo Show. Now, back to the interview. I wanted to also talk about you know, the future of open source. You know, when we talk about public cloud, occasionally think open source. I mean, with Amazon, occasionally will participate in open source technologies, not just take it and productize it. Um, like they just did the open source, their implementation of Elastic, for example. With public cloud, 
you know, kind of taking over. What, what do you see as the future of open source? I mean, with, especially like with licensing changes, like with Mongo, uh, Redis, et cetera. Well, I think uh, that is a very, very interesting uh, thing, right? Uh, I see in this case the open source, right, is there are really two kind of open source, right? If you look. and I think this uh, recent developments really split that into much more uh, more clearly, right? There is uh, open source, right? You can think about that like community open source or SQLite open source, which is focused about hey, you know what? I want to maximize the value to open source. I want to maximize the collaboration, right? And in this case, the more people take it, right, use it, make your technology accessible, the better it is. And then the other one is an open, is kind of much more of a venture-funded commercial open source, where a lot of people started the company and then took the money, in this case, to make money, right? That, that is the only way uh, of a reason, like VCs would give you money, right, to get 10x plus return. And in their case, you know, frankly, they typically don't give a shit about open source, but what they, as a original open source value, but what they see, they care about the open source as a thing, which is chosen by, by the market. If a proprietary software would be still much more accepted, right? Well, that's what's uh, available to probably continue going, right? And what we, and we see that uh, really happening right now, right? If many of those licenses, you see people going kind of more close using not completely open source license on one side and uh, on the other, uh, also people shifting to a more open source license out there. Now, on Amazon, let me give you, I think, this kind of very interesting example of the reaction to PostgreSQL ecosystem and Elastic ecosystem to Amazon. Because both of them are in essentially in the same uh, space, right? There is uh, RDS on Amazon and there is uh, Elastic on, uh, on Amazon. And Amazon contributes kind of a little bit, but not a lot to both of the projects, so, right? But how did the uh, uh, PostgreSQL ecosystem took that? They took it, oh, that is fantastic. Because you know what? The, because simple Postgres now is available on Amazon or on Azure, right, on, Google, on GCP, it is fantastic. More people can use Postgres and they love it. On the other hand, from Elastic, you can say, oh my gosh, more people now can use Elastic on Amazon. That means Elastic company will not be able to monetize things as heavily, well, let's do something about that, right? And I like thinking about that as a, you think about like a small cake and a big cake mentality, right? The PostgreSQL thinking, which I think is right one in the context of an open source and hey, let's focus of making the cake bigger for everybody else. And if a cake is huge, then there is enough space for all of us out there. Right? And yes, maybe you're not going to control 95% of a case, right? but uh, you are you know, going to make a good living still. Right? So, so that is, I think, the, is a very important thing. Now, the, I think it's also important difference here is if you think about the uh, PostgreSQL, one of the reasons they didn't do that, because they really can't. There is not a single company which controls PostgreSQL, why Elastic, of course, can. Right. And, uh, uh, you know, when, uh, you know, big money speaks, uh, then typically those, you know, true values of open source mumbo jumbo in the end, they go out of a window. Right. And yeah. things like uh, happen if license change happens. 
in your mind, is that the biggest hurdle that open source has to to overcome right now? Is it this battle of, like you said, the big money? Well, in my opinion, investment in open source, they are not that, right? I think uh, while a, a lot of kind of open source is being kind of created, which is maybe not adherent to full open source values completely, there is also a lot of innovation going to the through open source because of that. What I see there danger is inflation of a term open source, right? Because if you look at what a lot of people are doing out there, like Elastics or MongoDBs, right? They are preaching, oh, SSPL is just as good as a truly open source license. <laughs> no, it isn't, right? Or people say, well, but you know what? Amazon Aurora is open source compatible, right? And then... Mm, you know, open source, uh, uh, right, in this case, is used as a marketing term, right, to refer to what is in the substance of the proprietary product, right? And what I see while somebody who were in the open source in the, for a long time, you know, 10 years, right, or more, they understand all of those differences, right? The new people coming in, they may not understand the difference, right? Uh, I think that is a great danger, and I think that is what really open source movement should spend a lot of focus about is making sure people understand what is a true open source and uh, what is a sort of, you know, wolf in a ship closing kind of open source. Mm -hmm. It sounds almost like the uh, the natural food movement here in the United States. It's, it's really funny because people want all natural, they they don't want processed foods, but because the term is so vague, anyone could put the the label of all natural on on their product and and say that it's that it's natural when it's not really vegan based or organic or whatever the people think they're getting with that term. It's it's almost the same in in the open source world because you've got open source, oh. you've got open core, you've got all these different offshoots of of true Absolutely. open source. Absolutely. And it's kind of funny you use uh, uh, this example because I use it also too, right? And what I tell the people, look, we have, we have like a two terms, right? There is organic. And organic is actually a trademark term and you need to pass through certain certification to be able to right. put that label. Natural is not, right? I mean, it, it may be done, made from a dog shit, right? But it's still natural, right? <laughs> it doesn't particularly make it good for you. Uh, and... <laughs> That is a problem with an open source, right? What uh, there is, uh, open source is like natural, yeah. uh, right? I mean, there is, it's not trademark term. And we can talk, talk in this case even like, well, like, there is sort of like an OSI, uh, right? And we can talk about the OSI certified open source, right? But uh, really you can call yourself open source, right? And you're not in line with uh, open uh, OSI principles and... What you can expect is maybe only some community members saying, oh, you know what, that is not real open source. But when you speak about those huge companies with billions, tens of billions dollars of marketing, right, they can crowd down your voice, mm -hmm. right, if that's only your voice. Yeah, there's so many that do not meet the open source definition. And as much as I would, you know, cry about it, I will say cry, I, I'm like... <laughs> You're not meeting the open source definition, blah, blah, blah. I think more or less like they're meeting, now there isn't an open core definition, but they are meeting what I would think is an open core definition. And But using the term open source as a marketing term, which is unfortunate. 
Yeah, so I would hope what we have more of a standardization out there, right? And I think if you look at the practical open source, that it's not just uh, that, right? When people have an intent to play fast and loose, there are some other mm, examples. Like, like, for example, I've seen the software, which will be open source, but uh, mm, it would require very complicated build process, and the build scripts are not open source. Right, and the binaries they only give to their customers. Right, so it's in theory it is open source, but you know what? Unless, <laughs> unless you're paying us, you're screwed. Kind of open source. Mm-hmm. That also is, uh, you know, maybe trying to meet the letter of the law of the open source without uh, really having the open source uh, spirit. Exactly, without embracing that that spirit. It sounds like what we need to do is we need to almost combat some of this big money, some of these folks that have kind of claimed open source. I mean, just a few months ago, we had a, a very large company say that open source was their birthright. I, that, that, I mean, they, it sounded like they laid claim to open source. And it's like, that's completely contrary to the spirit of open source. Yeah. Uh, but they're predominant in the space. And we, we I, I won't mention their name, but and they don't uh, make a ton of open source contributions themselves. No, they recently. really don't. Yeah. And their so core what, product's proprietary. Right. Yeah. So what we need to do almost is is pour some money into true open source. Find those projects, find those communities, and find a way to get money to them. And so one of, one of the things that seems to come up on the show quite frequently, actually, is how, how can we promote these business models that really embrace monetizing open source, whether that's a, a fund the maintainer or, or a traditional subscription model, something like a Cladera or, or even Red Hat. How do you think we should go about this? Or is, is there any one right way? Well, you know, this is, I think, is an interesting state of the industry, not just in open source, about uh, how much of the effort in general in the modern world is spent on selling and marketing. Right. Think about, for example, you know, drug research. Right. I mean, you would read about what it's uh, from a you know cost. Typically, like about maybe ten percent goes in terms of hey, the actually creating of a drug. The other one is the rest is full focused on the selling and marketing of that uh, that stuff. Right. And we right. Uh, almost kind of got used to that uh, idea of. What it's not the best things technology or iOS win, but which are the most marketed. Like the best thing to win in many businesses is, hey, not to spend in technology, right? Maybe to say what you're spending on technology, but to really make sure what you market the hell out of the things, right? And I think their reality goes to that is uh, not just throwing more money out, uh, on the companies because, frankly, if you as a company uh, choose to follow kind of open source principles and invest a lot of engineering and kind of do good, your profit margins by definition are not going to be, you know, matched, right? Wouldn't be matched, right? But what's uh, sort of like a fake open source companies can do, right? So I think what is more valuable uh, in this case is really educating people about the making choices for himself, right? Kind of learn to, hey, filter out uh, this kind of, you know, noise you have and really understand the ultimate truth, right? And I kind of started talking about I was born kind of in the Soviet Union, right? And what I think is interesting in this kind of case is you have 
the state kind of, you know, propaganda machine, right? Which can be really compared to what often we see in our space, right? There is like a one, maybe a wrong point of view, right? But it's kind of a definite. But over time, enough people can learn to make decisions for themselves, right? And see that thing, right? And fakeness of it, of it all for what it is, right? So uh, the change can happen. So, Peter, we've really enjoyed having you on the show today. Uh, so if people want to connect with you, where, where should they go? Oh, well, uh, I think I'm uh, easy to find. I'm there on Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, uh, Facebook. You can also go to percoin.com and uh, find a bunch of my writings or presentations out there. Awesome. And, and if folks want to engage with Percona, uh, how should they get started? Well, the same thing, right? You could probably go to uh, percona.com and that is where you can find uh, all our software free and open source uh, for real, uh, as I mentioned, as well as you can uh, talk to uh, to our team to see if we can uh, help you with anything on commercial basics. Awesome. Of course, all the links to uh, Peter and Percona will be in the show notes. Peter, thank you so much for joining us. We'll have to have you back on the show again real soon. Okay. Of course. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today. As always, your feedback is welcome. Head on over to pseudo.show slash discuss. If you'd like more of Brandon and I, you can find it over at pseudo.show and on social media at pseudoshowpodcast. You can catch more awesome content over at our network partners, destinationlinux.network. If you want more of Brandon, you can catch him on Twitter at dbrandonjohnson or his website at open-tech.net. And you can follow me at ITGuyEric on itguyeric.com. Remember, the pseudo show is your place for all things enterprise open source. Until next time. Thank you.